0: Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Judges, uh, chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. So Judges, chapter 11, verse 1, and actually, we're going to start a couple verses leading into chapter 11. We're actually going to start at 10, verse 17, and I will admit today's passage is pretty long. So what you need to do, you need to stand up just for a second with me. Please do so. I have you do this every once in a while. Stretch a little bit. Sometimes you got to warm up before you hear God's word. For whatever reason, 9.30 on Sunday morning, even though most of you get up way earlier during the week, it just feels still early, right? So you may be seated for now. I'll have you stand up later. Keep you moving. (laughs) Keep the blood pumping. I'm going to start at chapter 10, verse 17, and I think you'll get the idea of what's going on here soon. So it says in 10.17, remember this is the Old Testament. This is before Jesus has come. The Israelites are in the promised land. And it says, When the Ammonites, this is a foreign nation, were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be what? What's the word say? Head. They'll be the leader. Keep that in mind. Over all who live in Gilead. So if you look up on screen here, Here's where this is. This is a map of Israel, and uh, if you can see my little laser pointer here, the Ammonites, there's Ammon, they want to come in and attack and take this region, just east of the Jordan River, just east of the Dead Sea, right there. All right, so it says in chapter 11, verse 1, and this is the main character now of our text, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, and his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. They said, You are not going to get any inheritance in our family because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. So do you see what's going on here? The Ammonites want to come in and attack, the Israelites are in trouble. And so they are asking for someone to come in and lead us, and whoever leads us and gives us victory will be our leader, okay? Now, there's a problem. Did you notice who they're not inquiring of and asking for help right now? Who are they not seeking right now in all of this? God. They just want someone to come in and give them the victory. So it mentions Jephthah. He's going to come in later. He was the son of a prostitute. So as he grew up, his brother said, you're not a legitimate member of the family, we're going to drive you out so you cannot have an inheritance. So, back in that day and age, that was a big deal in a shame and honor culture. So, he goes and lives in the wilderness somewhere. He's kind of like a gang leader or a mob leader, or maybe we might call him a pirate today, you know? So, it says in verse four, let's keep going. It said, Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said in verse six, Come. Be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. And Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? And the elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be what? Head. Have we seen that word already? Yes, they are looking for a head, someone to lead them. And you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered in verse 9, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me, will I really be your what? Head. There it is again. The elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. And so Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him, what's the word again? Head and commander over them. And he repeated all the words before the Lord in Mizpah. Let's stop there for a second. You know, it's worth pausing just to remember what happened last week and comparing it to this week. Many scholars have noted that what's going on last week in chapter 10 is very similar to what's going on here in chapter 11. So for instance, in chapter 10 last week, when the Israelites are in trouble and only when they're in trouble, do they call out to the Lord whom they've rejected and despised. Well, similarly now in chapter 11, When the Israelites in trouble, and only when they're in trouble, do they call now for Jephthah, like they asked the Lord in chapter 10, whom they had rejected and despised. Or if you compare chapter 10 and 11 some more, in chapter 10, the Lord discerns that they don't really want to return to him. They just want him to come in and rescue them. They don't want his rule. They want his rescue. Well, similar here in chapter 11, Jephthah is being very discerning. He knows they don't really want his rule and for him to be head. They just want his rescue to be the commander. Yet, amazingly, in chapter 10 and 11, both the Lord in chapter 10 and Jephthah now in chapter 11 both agree that they're going to help the Israelites here. So let's see what happens. Let's keep going. Verse 12, it says, Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against me that you have attacked my country? And the king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. So if you look at this map again, the king of the Ammonites is claiming that this area from the Arnon River here in the south, all the way up to the Jabbok River here in the north, and then the Jordan River on the west, he is claiming that that territory belongs to them. And when the Israelites came out of slavery in Egypt, the Israelites took it. And so the king of the Ammonites is saying, give it back to us. And look what Jephthah is going to say in verse 14 now. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king saying this. This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up out of Egypt, this was several hundred years ago, by the way, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab, and he refused, so Israel stayed at Kadesh. Next, they traveled through the wilderness, skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon River. They did not enter the territory of Moab. For the Arnon was its border. By the way, if you want to read about some of this history that he's talking about, you can read about this in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapters 20 and 21. This is he's just kind of reciting some history for him. Says in verse 19, Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, not the Ammonites, but the Amorites, it gets a little bit confusing, who ruled in Heshbon and said to him, Let us pass through your country to our own place. But Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all of his troops and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and his whole army into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. And so let's pause there for a moment because... What Jephthah's saying in this letter, remember they didn't have email back then, he wasn't texting this to the king of the Ammonites, it wasn't like they were messaging on Facebook, this was messengers they were sending. He's basically saying, oh king of the Ammonites, you're mistaken, just look at it historically. We did not take the land, we didn't even want the land, we went around it and we only took the land when the king of the Amorites would refuse to let us go through. We tried to go through peaceably but he fought us That's the only time we took the land. So you did not have the land to begin with. It belonged to the Amorites, not the Ammonites. And we didn't take it because we wanted it to. We only took it because we had to. And then he keeps going with his argument in verse 23. Jephthah says to the king of the Ammonites, Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God Chemosh gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. So now he says, you know, he said before, look at your history. You're not right in the facts, but look at this theologically. We didn't even want the land, but God gave us the land. God gave us the victory. And then he kind of, I think, engages in verse 24. I think he's being pretty kind of funny here. He's like, you know, God gave us our land. Don't you have a God? Won't he give you what you need? You know, I think he's kind of, you know, kind of trash-talking him a little bit. (laughs) Will not your God, Chemosh, give you what you deserve? The Lord gave us what we deserve. So that's his second argument is theological. And then his third argument is in verse 25. The letter keeps going on. Are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? And you can read about that in Numbers 22 and 23 and 24. And then it says in verse 26, For three hundred years Israel occupied this area, Heshbon, Arar, the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord the judge decide this dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. So let's take a quick vote, real quick. How is Jephthah doing in his leadership thus far? How many think he's doing a good job? How many think he's doing a bad job? How many are not awake yet and didn't vote? (laughs) I know it's still early. He's doing a pretty good job. Before he fights them with the sword, he's using the pen and messengers. He's saying, you know what? Look at this historically. We didn't take the land. They fought against us. We only had to take it when we had to. He's looking at this theologically. God gave us the land. And he's looking at it legally legally that you guys have had 300 years to lay claim to this land, but you've been silent this whole time. So verse 28, it says, The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. And then it says in verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And this is probably the most famous part of this passage. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And let's read this part together. Let's read it out loud. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So how's Jephthah doing now? Not so good, right? Whatever comes out of my house, he promises to the Lord. Now, this is a pretty extreme vow, isn't it? But have you ever bartered with the Lord and said, you know what, Lord? If you only do this, then I'll do that. If you give me victory or give me this, then I will do this. Let's stand now for the reading of God's word for the rest of it. Verse 32. And then it says, Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Minith as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. So, did Israel win? Yes. But look what happens in verse 34 When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down, and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Verse 36, My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you have promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. And after the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year, the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. So you may be seated. So even though God gives them victory... Really, the whole point of the text is not so much about the victory. It's about this crazy vow that Jephthah makes. Israel's victory is quickly tainted and overshadowed by this foolish vow that Jephthah made and also kept. Now, before I keep reading, there's just a little bit more. I mean, I said it's going to be a long passage. Some wonder maybe Jephthah made this vow because he was going to sacrifice an animal. Maybe he anticipated that an animal would come out to meet him first because back in that day and age, often animals and humans lived a lot closer together, often shared the same living space at time. Well, even if he meant that to happen, that's not what happened. And he was open to the idea of offering a human sacrifice because when his daughter comes through the door, the first being to meet him, he is devastated that he made this vow. Another thing that I've heard argue but I don't agree with some wonder, maybe Jephthah didn't really kill his daughter. Instead, maybe he just dedicated her to the Lord and said, you know what? You'll never marry. You'll never have children. I'm going to dedicate you to Lord to serve the Lord for the rest of your days. In some ways, that would be nice if that were true, but I just can't see it because it says that he is going to dedicate her as a burnt offering. And then one scholar even says the request for a two-month reprieve from the daughter before the sentence is carried out, makes no sense unless he literally sacrificed her life. In short, Jephthah did promise to make a human sacrifice to God if God gave him victory. He was obviously hoping maybe for an animal, maybe a servant, but not his only child. Jephthah promised human sacrifice to God. So two big questions that come up to me when I study this is, why would he make this promise? And even more, why would he actually keep this promise to God. Well, let me read just a little bit more. There's seven more verses I want to read, then we'll be done with Jephthah. I didn't want to prolong Jephthah for another week, so I thought, let's just read this next seven verses because it's depressing enough. It says in chapter 12, verse 1 now, continuing the story of Jephthah, then I'll answer those questions I brought up. It says, the Ephraimite forces, so this is the tribe of Ephraim, they were called out and they crossed over to Zaphon. They said to Jephthah, why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your what? What's it say? Head. Did we see that word earlier? Yeah, Jephthah wanted to be the head of them. And now that the Ephraimites are saying, we're going to bring down your house, which ironically Jephthah already did. By burning his only child, his only daughter, he is bringing his own house down. Verse two, Jephthah answered the Ephraimites, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites, and although I called you, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life into my hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now, why have you come up today to fight me? Verse 4, Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead, and he fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. So do you see what's going on here? Here? Instead of Israel fighting the Ammonites, a foreign enemy, they are now fighting their very own people. There is a civil war going on. And you can see Jephthah's motivation. If you go back to verse 4 on the screen, he is upset at the end because basically they are calling Jephthah and his people renegades. They don't belong, they're not real Israelites. And this is something Jephthah's always experienced, even from the time he was younger, he was kicked out of his own family. He's always been an outcast in his own family, always been an outcast in Israel, and he is upset by this, that he feels like he has to fight them and prove himself. Well, the story gets worse. Verse 5, the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan River leading to Ephraim, and whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, are you an Ephraimite? If he replied no, they played a little game of password. They said this, all right, say Shibaleth. Say that with me, Shibboleth. And we're not sure what that means. But if he said Sibaleth, not Shibaleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. And then it says, sadly, 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time because of this. So Jephthah has caused the death of 42,000 of his own people. That's more than live in Adams County, if I know my population right. (laughs) That's a lot of people. Verse seven, Jephthah led Israel six years, then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town in Gilead. So let's take another vote. Was Jephthah's leadership good or bad? How many say it was good? (laughs) How many say it was bad? How many say it was really bad? <laughs> Way bad. Yeah, it was. it's depressing by the end. He started well. He seemed like he was going to negotiate and do well. But by the end, it's really sad. So let's try to answer those questions I brought up in my remaining time. Why would Jephthah make this vow? And why did he keep his vow? So first of all, why would he make this vow? And I think it's worth noting that Child sacrifice back then was very common among the nations around them. It mentioned the god Chemosh. There was also another god named Malik that uh, they practiced literally burning their children in the fire as a burnt offering. And so the nations around them were known, sadly, for child sacrifice. So here's my short answer. Why do I think Jephthah made this vow? I think the culture around him had influenced him way too much he was being influenced more by the nations around him than he was by his very own God and his beliefs. And so the question for you and I today, even though we think this story is removed from us, are we ever influenced by the culture around us as believers? Absolutely. In fact, even if you think about this idea of child sacrifice, which I know is horrible to think about, it doesn't take much imagining to make a connection to our own nation and several countries today as we practice the horrible practice of abortion and support it, the murder of innocent, unborn children. Our time is not that much different, if you think about it in that way, versus their time. But let's make it even more personal. Even though we may not want to sacrifice our children like that, of course, do we ever commit a kind of child sacrifice by by investing so much in our career and getting ahead and having money that we neglect our own children and family? Is that not a type of child sacrifice? Or even think about this too, another type of child sacrifice. When you're home with your family or your children, are you ever distracted by those little devices? What are they called? Smart phones, right? (laughs) You ever distracted by these smart devices and looking at stuff that you neglect your own family? Is, Is that not a type of Child sacrifice, even though it's not as bad as burning your child in the fire, I get that. Or parents, do we ever try to live our life through our own children? So much so that we put a lot of pressure on them, wanting to be involved in certain things or achieving certain things that we put a lot of pressure on them and and make them do things they may not want to do or what's best for them, all because it's more about us than them. Do we not also as well in that situation commit a type of child sacrifice I really don't think we're that much different than that time and day. Even though it looks different, we struggle with the same thing. You know, it's very ironic, sadly, that Jephthah delivered Israel from a nation that practiced child sacrifice only to engage in child sacrifice himself. So in what ways are you and I conforming to the culture too? It may not be this area, but but two of the biggest areas that I see in our church and in all Christians throughout the country— Two big ways that the culture has seeped in is in terms of money, the way we view money and handle money, and in terms of sexuality. Our culture is squeezing us into its mold, making us think that our money and our bodies and our gender and our identity and our sexuality, that's something we can define, something we can do rather than using it for the glory of God. Romans chapter 12 verse 2, would you read this out loud with me? Paul says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So how are you and I being influenced by the culture? How is the world squeezing you into its mold? And oftentimes it's very subtle. How are we becoming like Jephthah, sadly? So the first question was, why did Jephthah make this vow? The second question is this, why did he actually keep it? So it's one thing to make it, but why did he actually keep it? Certainly God takes vows seriously in the Old Testament and today. Certainly if you made a vow in the Old Testament, you were not to make it rashly or hastily and were to keep it if you could. But here's why I think he kept his vow, and it's a big failure on his part. Because he failed to know God, and the character of God as revealed in God's word. He failed to know God, and he failed to know God's word. Because Jephthah should have known that in the book of Leviticus, they had this book back then, that he could have gotten out of his vow, that God provided a way out in the book of the law, that if you made a vow, a haste vow, and wanted to get out, you could actually redeem yourself from that vow. So he could have gotten out of that vow if he would have made a, that redemption for it. That's in Leviticus 27. But even furthermore, I think he failed to know who God really is. The nations around him are influencing him that our God has to be bought off with sacrifice or appeased with sacrifice or hard work. But that's not the kind of God we serve. Had he known that our God is holy, yes, it's true, but also loving and would forgive him if he would confess his sin to the Lord, I think the Lord would have had forgiven him. He could have gotten out of the vow. Had he but confessed and known that a true sacrifice is not his own child, but a broken and contrite heart, that's the only sacrifice God requires that he could have gotten out of the vow. And so to connect that to us today, I think we have that same tendency, just as we have the culture influence us, I think also we too often fail to know God really as revealed in his word. Let me give you an example of this. Last week, I mentioned that um, our God is holy. We see this all through Scripture, and yet he's also loving. And that's, a, that's kind of a weird tension we see all through Scripture. But I've noticed among most Christians, we tend to emphasize one more than the other. So, for instance, if you're the kind of person that focuses a lot more on God's holiness, you may take sin very seriously, but you forget his love, and thus you feel very anxious before the Lord. Maybe you feel like it's never good enough that you have to work to earn God's favor and forgiveness. You always pray the prayer of salvation because you're never sure if you're really forgiven because you're neglecting God's love and grace. And and even if you're doing well, people who tend to focus on God's holiness more than his love at the expense of his love tend to look down on people and judge people and be kind of like Pharisees. It's a very sad way, unrestful way to live. But then there's also the reverse. People that focus on on God's love to the exclusion of God's holiness tend to be very loving and accepting, but they don't take sin very seriously. They tend to forget that it took the death of the Son of God and His blood to actually forgive us. And so instead of confronting someone over sin, in love, of course, they may shy away from that and say, you know what, it's okay, when really God takes a very serious view of sin. I mentioned last week that a true Christian understands both and kind of holds those things in tension, and they are resolved at the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, this past week, I had the chance to meet with a group of missionary church pastors from our region. And when pastors get together, we'll often brainstorm, how can we help, how can we help our people grow more in the Lord? And you know what we always come back to? If we could only help our people read the word of God daily and pray. (laughs) You ever heard that before? That you need to pray and read your Bible. (laughs) You know, we'll go to conferences, people write books, but really the gist of their argument is, you know what? If everybody in our church was in the word of God daily, that would solve a lot of issues. And I mean, there's a lot at stake in this too because then you would know the truth. The truth would set you free. You wouldn't believe the lives of Satan and the culture or your own heart. If you were soaked in the Word of God daily more than Netflix or politics or Fox News or CNN, wherever you get your news, or sports, not that those things are wrong to look at, of course, but if God's Word was driving what defines us, can you imagine how that would change you, how it would change our church culture? You know, one of the pastors mentioned the five, five, five rule. Go like this real quick. Let me see your five fingers And this is a low bar, actually. He said if everybody in our church was reading God's Word for five minutes a day and praying for five minutes a day at least five times a week, that would change a lot. And that's not even that much of a high bar, is it? Because how many of you check your phone for at least five minutes a day? How many of you at least go on social media for five minutes a day? I mean, even when you get up in the morning, what's the first thing you check? Is it the news? Is it the weather? Is it sports? Is it Social media, what if all of us started our day just by looking at God's word for five minutes a day and then spent five minutes in prayer? How would that change the trajectory of our lives? You know, last Sunday, Drew Taylor and Holly Hummer were giving their testimonies as they were baptized, and it was powerful. And Drew shared that when he was feeling suicidal, really at the lowest moment of his life, the Holy Spirit of God reminded him of the word of God. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. Literally saved his life, it says, whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them actually finds mercy. I mean, did you realize that reading the word of God, your very life, my very life is at stake? His physical life, his spiritual life was at stake, but the same is true for us. Every day when we neglect God's word and believe the lies of the culture or Satan or our own heart, our very lives are at stake. It can lead us down a path of destruction, like Jephthah, if we're not careful. You know, as we close today and get ready to sing, our sermon series is entitled, Longing for a Leader. Jephthah reminds us of Jesus in some ways, and that Jesus, too, was despised and rejected, wasn't he? He was kicked out, denied, betrayed. But, of course, Jesus is a way better Jephthah. There's no comparison, (laughs) Both had kind of scandalous origins. Jesus was born of a virgin Mary, Jephthah of a prostitute. Both were rejected. But Jesus, he did not give in to the ways of the culture. When everybody was wanting Jesus to be a certain kind of Messiah, he said, you know what? I've come not to free you from the Romans or politically. I've come to free you from sin at your very heart. Jesus was the kind of being that shows us what a life Living in the word of God looks like he was tempted for 40 days in the desert, and he told the devil that man does not live on bread alone, but on what? Every word that comes from the mouth of the living God. What if you and I had that kind of life, living on every single word that comes from the mouth of the living God? Even on the cross, Jesus held firm to whom his father was. Even when he became sin who knew no sin, he cried out, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? God was still his God, even on the cross, and when he became sin and bored on our behalf. As you look to Jesus Christ, the perfect leader, a much better Jephthah, it'll free us from the ways of the world and help us focus on the word of God. Let's pray. Father, I I do thank you for the word of God. I even thank you for a crazy story like this. It reminds us just how much We are often influenced by the culture around us. We're influenced by our own heart and how much we need the Word of God. Lord, I pray that that we would leave with a sense of desperation to know you. We need you, not just through the trials of life, but even when life is good. We need to be reminded of who's in charge, that you are, and it is a good rule. Lord, we don't know how to rule our lives. We need you to do it. Lord, I also pray that you would remind us, too, that you are a God of grace that we're going to sing about. Lord, that that we can come before you, confess our sin, and we will find mercy. Jephthah failed in that, but we can succeed in that because of what Jesus Christ did. So, Father, I pray that you would draw us closer to you and your son, Jesus Christ, today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.